Well, a good Thursday morning to you and welcome to Real Talk. If you're tuning in live, it is 1030 Eastern, 830 Mountain Time. And if you're catching this later on our YouTube channel, on our podcast, welcome to what promises to be a great show. In just a moment, we're going to check in with three individuals that have that have come together, I suppose, in the name of whistleblowing. Uh, a big award announced uh, yesterday. It was it was embargoed, which means we couldn't tell you about it until we went off the air until our live recording wrapped yesterday. And so we're excited to open the show today uh, with Alberta physician John O'Connor. He's going to be joined by uh, an individual that you've heard on the show before. James Turk was on before the director from the Center for Free Expression at the Faculty of Communications and Design at Ryerson University. You remember this? We were talking about whistleblowing a while back. And then uh, and then we're going to be joined by Athabasca Chippewan First Nation Chief Alan Adam, one of the more prominent, one of the most prominent uh, indigenous leaders in Canada, if you ask me, and certainly in Alberta for the strong stances that he's taken uh, in arguing for his community's health and safety. So how do these three fit together? Well, Dr. O'Connor just honored with an award it's essentially like a whistleblowing award. It's the inaugural award, the new Peter Bryce Prize for whistleblowing. And it goes to individuals. We're going to learn more about it in a second. But individuals who take on personal risk in the name of blowing the whistle in scenarios that are potentially or are harming other people. We're going to talk about cancer downstream from the Alberta oil sands. That's coming up in just a second. It's going to be a great conversation. And then our nine to 10 o'clock hour today, we're bringing you uh, we're going to get into talk on psychedelics and mental health. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. You may have heard of new trends around microdosing. You may have heard about psilocybin, you know, how magic mushrooms are being used for people with with mental health uh, concerns or, or, or people that are just looking to to make the most of their lives. You may have heard of ayahuasca, these ceremonies that that people undergo that can be uh, dramatically life altering, life changing experiences. We're going to be joined by uh, Jasmine Parazic from the Canadian Psychedelic Association. Uh, Dr. Peter Silverstone, he's a, a psychiatrist. He's been on the show before. He's also the CEO of a new company called Silotech. Uh, We're going to learn more about that. And then Ryan Hook, who's a journalist. Ryan's been writing about psychedelics and mental health. Uh, for quite some time now. So a roundtable coming up from nine to 10 o'clock plus your emails. So it's going to be a great show. We've got an amazing email. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read an email out of the gates here, Sam, are our guests ready to rock and roll uh, here? We got two out of three, two out ready. of three ready to yeah. go right now. Well, it gives me time to read this from Sean. This uh, made my day this morning. We just received this, this email. Uh, Sean says, I wanted to let you know, reach out and let you know how real talk changed my day. That's how you get, host's attention open an email like that he says i was listening to real talk on tuesday when you had that guy les landry on from people fighting poverty and i was literally on my way to the store sean says he was on his way to the apple store we'll have to grind his gears for that uh, maybe maybe he's not in edmonton if he was going you know he should be going to westworld but still but still i'm just having a little fun with his email he says oh, I'm a, he says i was on my way to the apple store to pick up some things that honestly i really didn't need And as I approached the parking lot, I sat and I reflected on the fact that somebody had reached out as part of Les's story. Somebody had reached out to to thank people fighting poverty for, for something as simple as giving them milk money, like a modest donation. And instead of going to the mall, I decided, says Sean, get this, 
I decided to send my money to less and just head home. He says the interview made me sad, but at the same time, it really made me feel great that people like Les are out there helping other people. And it empowered me to help somebody else as well. Sean says, thanks for giving an awesome dude like that a platform to give us all the reality check we needed. Wow. Sean. So you say that this show changed your day well. Your email made our day, and that's absolutely remarkable. And thank you for taking that step. That's amazing. What a moment. Just sitting there in the parking lot and going, no, I'm going to change my plan. And I'm going to pay it forward. Pay that blessing forward. The ability to go in and buy something you, you don't necessarily need. And instead, you're going to turn around and make a donation. Incredible. Real talkers. This is why I, I, this is why I tell you about how strongly I feel about this community, how strongly I feel about this audience every single day. We're ready to jump into this conversation. So let me remind you that our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well, is all about educating you about cryptocurrency. So you've heard CEO, founder Adam O'Brien on the show before. You've seen him on the show before. Well, he's hosting on Saturday a Bitcoin Q&A live stream. He says, I'm looking for as many questions, especially the hard questions as possible. Adam loves when people ask him tough questions about crypto. He says, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and crypto. We'll, we'll be touching on NFTs, he says, Ryan, like you did on the show yesterday. He says, you can ask your questions on Twitter. Just use the hashtag AskAdamO'Brien. And then you can find him on Twitter at Adam O'Brien underscore. It's a live stream at 4 p.m. Mountain, 6 p.m. Eastern, March 6th on the Adam O'Brien YouTube channel. That's the founder and CEO of Bitcoin Well. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, this is a remarkable story that, that probably has not seen as much public discourse as it should. And oftentimes public awareness starts with somebody doing a little research, somebody coming to a conclusion based on evidence and fact, and then blowing the whistle. And that's exactly what Alberta physician Dr. John O'Connor did yesterday, named as the recipient of an inaugural award, the new Peter Bryce Prize for whistleblowing. It was awarded by... The team at the Center for Free Expression, Ryerson University, that's where James Turk is, and Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation, uh, intimately involved in this story as well as he endeavors and works to protect the members of his community. Gentlemen, to the three of you, welcome to Real Talk, and thank you for making time for us this morning. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Looking forward to hearing from all three of you. James, it probably makes sense to begin with you. Why don't we establish what this award, the award is all about, and then I'll ask our other two guests about the story in particular. Who was Peter Bryce of the Peter Bryce Prize? Peter Bryce was one of the earliest Canadian whistleblowers. In 1904, he was appointed to be the medical inspector for the then Department of in Interior and of Indian Affairs. And he began a systematic collection of health statistics on several hundred Indian uh, First Nations uh, scattered across Canada and studying the health conditions in residential schools. And he was appalled by what he found. And he published a report in 1907 on the horrific impact of the poor sanitation health practices in the residential schools and showed an, uh, a mortality rate 
uh, kids dying between 14 and 24 percent of the kids in the schools were dying. And his report really made clear that the federal government was responsible for this, directly responsible. Uh, the Department of Indian Affairs did not publish his report. It did get leaked to the media. There was a public outcry, but the residential schools remained open and Bryce's recommendations were uh, almost totally ignored. He continued to push because he was really troubled by what was happening. Uh, and as a result, he was moved out of his job and then later forced to retire. Uh, but he didn't stop then. He then published a pamphlet called The Story of a National Crime, detailing uh, again publicly what was wrong and what needed to be done. Um, so he stood up, faced a huge price for drawing attention to what was allowed to continue and the horrible price paid by Indigenous people across the country uh, because the government ignored his, uh, his warnings. And uh, he was a real hero in speaking out at that time. This was, this was more than 100 years ago. Chief Adam, we'll be we'll hearing from Dr. O'Connor on the research that he's done around cancer rates uh, in the, the Fort Chippewan and other surrounding communities. This has been an area of great concern, obviously, for you and members of your community for quite some time. For people that aren't 100 percent familiar with this story, can you bring us up to speed on on cancer rates in your community and and what the history has been of you advocating uh, for your fellow citizens? Well, good morning, everyone, and, uh, you know, thanks for being on the show. But, you know, in 2009, uh, you know, the re report came out that out of 39 known cancers, there are 51 rare cancers in the community of Fort Chip. And uh, we were supposed to conduct a comprehensive health study in the community back then. Uh, we agreed upon it between both government levels and uh, the community of Fort Chip. But law, uh, industry lobbied uh, the government that they wanted to have a say in the raw data of the material that was going to be going out. And the community fought against that. And uh, when we fought against uh, industry being part of the study uh, for uh, their findings, we thought that it wouldn't be fair to the community having the culprits uh, be part of the study and have all the raw data and put their say into it. And, you know, we figured that they would alter the wording of the study and nothing would come out of it concrete. And when we put that position in place, uh, both levels of government walked away from the table, which still uh, remains um, unresolved at this point in time, I guess, because uh, there's no study being done. Uh, we're still waiting. Uh, and yet industry still continues to develop. Government still continues to run programs and do what they have to do. While our community is still plagued with uh, cancer um, diseases that are still popping up today and people are still being diagnosed as we talk here today as well. Chief, how, how would you describe the, the, the sense? I mean, where are people at 
um, with regards to your your community members? I mean, is this something that that's a commonly a, a, a topic of discussion? Would you characterize people as 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 having elevated worries around this? Is, is this something where people perceive there to be a wrong being perpetrated against them on an ongoing basis? There is a there is a wrong being perpetrated against the people of the community. Uh, I'll give you a prime example. Um, you know, one of the industry players is uh, expanding, and they're expanding south this time, south closer to Fort McMurray. Uh, I think it's five kilometers from Fort McMurray uh, that the open pit mine is going to go at, and from my understanding, the people of the community of Fort McMurray are up in arms and they don't want this uh, open pit mine five kilometers from the community of Fort McMurray. Ironically, it was okay uh, when the pit was uh, 60 kilometers away, uh, closer to our end. So you could still understand that these are grave concerns. These are outstanding issues that still remain. And if the water flowed south, um, you know, from Fort McMurray, I guarantee you the general public will not have any of this kind of nonsense that's going on right now when it comes to the regulatory regime of the monitoring of the oil sands uh, uh, capacity. And it is the world's largest industrial compound as we speak here today. Dr. O'Connor, you've been practicing family medicine in the Fort McMurray area for coming up on 30 years now. And I know that you've been speaking out in support of indigenous communities in the north for more than in 20 years, in particular in Fort Chippewan. How did this story first get on your radar? Were you seeing firsthand uh, elevated or disproportionate cases of cancer from these communities? Yes. Good morning, Ryan. Um, I started going to Fort Chip in about 2002. Um, and I was uh, honoured and humbled to be trusted with the health of the community. Listening to the stories of the elders as they described the changes that they'd seen in their community, there's a process when you go in, when you go into a community like Portship, you have to gain the trust of, of the community. So as, as talking with and listening with the elders, the changes in the, envir- in the environment that they'd seen over the years was very intriguing. And then as I began to get to know the community and, and the individuals, I was increasingly concerned such a traditional community uh, who lived, hunted, fished and trapped um, would have such a burden of pathology. A lot of cancers, including a cancer called cholangiocarcinoma, which affects one in 200,000 of the population. My father actually died from cholangiocarcinoma in 1993. So I was very familiar with it and, and the implications of of getting it, um, I brought the, uh, this to the attention of Health Canada, thinking that they would be uh, concerned and look into it. Um, to my surprise, they did the opposite. They initially denied that there was any issues in the community. Uh, they um, went about doing a study of the community, came back a few months later saying that um, no, the cancer rates are no higher than um, we expected or, or for any community size. Um, as, as Alan said, in 2009, the Cancer Board in uh, Edmonton, um, having had a year to look at cancers in the community, uh, told us that actually there's a 30% higher rate of cancer contrary to what Health Canada had said. 
so it, it, their recommendation was for a comprehensive health study. Um, we spent a year putting together terms of reference for such a study. At the, at the end, the last minute, the chair of the committee, who was himself a physician, inserted a clause that management, a ma a management oversight committee should comprise representation from industry, which for Chip rightly said could be like the fox looking after the hen house. Um, they rejected it and both levels of government walked away. And they've never come back. Well, Chief Adam, what, what does that do to a community when you don't? What does that do to a community leader like yourself when you don't when, when there's evidence being presented, when there's research being presented, when there's undeniable anecdotal evidence that you would think would demand a full blown inquiry? And yet different levels of government refuse to take action and industry activity continues. What does that do to a guy like you? Well, <clears throat> You know, it just tells us that there is something wrong in the community and, you know, both levels of government along with industry are doing everything to cover up uh, the massive uh, concerns that are erupting, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we walk around the community and, you know, and look at everybody and we say to ourselves, uh, you know, who's next? And, you know... I just want to say that, you know, the last time I went home to Fort Chip, uh, one of my friends, uh, you know, sadly came up to me and told me that uh, he is uh, plagued with uh, cancer and uh, he's only a year older than I am. And it just tells me that these things are still there and nobody's doing nothing. And just because nobody's saying anything about it, uh, you know, both levels of government uh, tend to walk away from the funding. And, uh, you know, what I would like to see is that if we could uh, maybe have a campaign uh, for the community and raise some funds and uh, do the comprehensive study uh, from the community's perspective and go from that, you know, and that would be the greatest challenge of all in uh, raising the issues and therefore... Um, we would be able to unveil uh, what is happening to our community. And only then we will be able to uh, deal with the true magnitude of what's going on in our community from the world's largest industrial movement in the world. It's worth pointing out that we're coming up on seven years um, from the release of, of a study out of the University of Manitoba that linked 23 cases of cancer in 94 people in Fort Chippewa to high levels of contaminants in fish and animals consumed by residents uh, of this area. At the time, researcher Stefan McLaughlin told reporters, this is in July of 2014, that the effect of health on communities downwind of oil sands development is clear and worrisome. Uh, at that time, uh, chief of the Miccosue Cree First Nation, Steve Corderai, said this report confirms what we've suspected about the association between the environmental contaminants from oil sands production and cancer and other illness in our community. We are greatly alarmed. This demands further research to expand on these findings. It is time government does something. Enough is enough. That was July of 2014. Um, James, so so yesterday you announced the, the inaugural uh, Dr. Peter Bryce Prize for whistleblowing. By the way, as an aside, Dr. Mana Saleh, who's a lecturer at Concordia University, is watching live right now. She says, I teach my students about Dr. Peter Bryce. 
uh, to demonstrate that the claims that people didn't know about things that were happening in residential schools are factually untrue. That from Dr. Sally. So so what did Dr. O'Connor do? Because we know that individuals like this, Peter, typically aren't gonna, aren't going to boast on their own behalf. They're not going to brag. He's going to show up. He's being humble here. So so I'll get you to, to to pump his tires on his behalf. What is it that that physician John O'Connor did to be named the recipient of this prize? Dr. O'Connor took seriously his responsibility for helping protect the health of the community and uh, spoke out about what he found to be an unusually high uh, number of cancers, so far more than one would expect in a small community of that sort. Um, he had reason to expect that bringing this to the attention of Health Canada and the Alberta government would result in quick action uh, it resulted in the opposite. And as happens to many people who speak up about uh, public harm, he became the target. Three physicians from Health Canada filed a complaint against him uh, with the Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons trying to take get his license taken away. Um, he has met nothing but resistance from governments. And as he described, when they finally got the governments to the table after there became pretty compelling evidence that there was a problem, the governments would only proceed if industry had a, a key play place in this study. And you know, you don't appoint Dracula to the board doing an investigation of the Canadian blood service and, and blood problems. Um, and so when uh, the community said no, um, nothing's been done. So what we did yesterday, we wanted to recognize Dr. O'Connor for his courageous and persistent uh, adding his voice to that of the community and trying to get this problem solved. But the other thing we want even more is to get the problem solved. And, and like Chief Adam and like Dr. O'Connor, we really hope and are going to do everything we can to pressure governments to undertake the research that needs to be done and to deal with the problems so the people of Fort Chip and others downstream uh, from the uh, oil sands uh, don't continue to suffer these problems. Doctor, I want to ask you a two-part question. Number one, uh, what's that like to be piled on by fellow physicians filing complaints against the college? That's a big, I'm the son of a physician. I know that that's a big deal. Um, were you surprised by that? How did that make you feel? And part two, why do you think that provincial and federal governments have not followed up on promises to undertake comprehensive health studies in these communities of Fort Mackay, Fort Chipewyan? Uh, first question, I was completely stunned, shocked, totally unexpected uh, reaction on the part of uh, Health Canada and the physicians. Um, in fact, one of them came to the community of Fort Chip in 2006, sorry, the three of them, but one of them, um, to demonstrate that uh, they felt there was nothing wrong in the community. One of the physicians grabbed a mug filled with water in the kitchen of the nursing station, took a mouthful of it and turned to the gathering, uh, the, the gathered uh, attendees and said, um, you see, there's nothing wrong with the water here in Fort Chip. That was his first trip to the community and that was his conclusion after minutes being in the community. Um, number two, I don't know why uh, government has reacted the way it does and is so reluctant. Fort Chip is a population of about 1,200 people. It's not like several hundred thousand people. It's not a big city. Um, but interestingly, um, you know, in Alberta, um, big oil runs everything. 
the guild runs government, uh, has influences in, in all spheres. Um, that's my sort of uh, suspicion that there, there's an effort being made to protect the sacred cow that is the, the Tarzans. So, Chief, in closing, uh, you know, Sue's watching this morning. She says, boy, does Chief Adams have incredible self-regulation. If this was happening to my people, I would be ripping up the furniture right now. Uh, I want to ask you the same question. Why do you think that provincial federal governments have done relatively nothing about this? What does your advocacy look like and what's your call to action to people that are watching this or that are going to hear this podcast later? Well, when I, when I look at this issue and, you know, I've been a chief now for 13 years. Um, I look at my agenda of moving forward and doing stuff and everything and I've accomplished pretty much everything I set out to do as the chief for the community of ACFN. The only outstanding issue that remains is the health study. Um, that's the only thing that on my list that remains to be unfinished. And in order to combat that or move ahead, you can't argue, you can't fight because you be labeled as a tyrant and that's what I am. People say I'm a tyrant, whatever, but the fact remains, this study has to uh, move forward. The community is still waiting for the answers and government officials, just because they change, uh, does not mean that the community state from the health perspective uh, changes as well, because the community is still being plagued with numerous cancers. Um, like I said, uh, you know, the ironic uh, thing about this is that the general public continues to go on on a daily, daily basis while we continue to be plagued and wonder who's going to be next um, that's going to be diagnosed with cancer. And like I said, I have one of my friends that uh, when I went home the last time told me that uh, he has cancer and he revealed to me what kind of cancer he has and uh, I know for a fact that it's not very promising and things have to be get done. And if that's the case, uh, you know, I will lobby both levels of government to uh, proceed and take the study to move forward because uh, it cannot be left unturned. And I still got two more years left and I will start, continue to put pressure on. And this thing is still part of our agenda on our chief and council meeting on a month to month basis. Uh, and we're still talking about it. It hasn't gone away from our table, and I don't expect it to be gone from the Alberta government or the federal government's table as well. Chief, I know you have to go. I'm going to make this my last question, but you you advocate differently than almost any other uh, community leader in Canada, let alone indigenous leader. I mean, you, you have welcomed, uh, you know, you've welcomed Neil Young and Jane Fonda and Daryl Hannah and Leonardo DiCaprio and James Cameron and, and Greta Thunberg to the oil sands. You've been good at getting people's attention. Um, and I would imagine that you are uh, uh, optimistic that Albertans, that Canadians will come alive on this story. Depending on who you talk to, there are complicated relationships between indigenous Canadians and, and energy companies. Some look to uh, some communities are looking to invest in pipelines and in energy. Some are looking to completely shut it down. It depends if you're talking to communities on the coast, communities in Alberta. 
Do you personally uh, experience mixed feelings or are you torn between investing in and benefiting from uh, oil or other energy expansion and protecting the physical health of your community? How do you reconcile that? Well, like I said, you know, back in 2007, when I ran for chief, I, I ran on an economic uh, platform uh, based on the development that was going on in Fort McMurray. Uh, after one week after uh, becoming the chief of ACFN, uh, the health study was unfolded in the community. And I was standing amongst the community members and listening to the health study that was being unfolded and everything. And uh, I thought to myself back then, there goes my economic uh, development pro program. And we have to do things differently because now I'm being put on the center uh, of the forefront of <clears throat> arguing about the health study in the community. And uh, I had no idea back then that I was going to take this initiative on. And uh, I said to myself, well, I guess we have to make changes and uh, we will go with that. And here we are. We're still on the forefront. The issue is out in the open. It's worldwide known, uh, still there. Uh, you know, I just want to make sure that uh, people have to understand when you make a decision of where your nation's going to go in regards to development or the health study, people have to work, uh, people have to make a living and you know, we did what we had to do as a nation. And in order to make the proper changes, in order to get our concerns out there and everything, uh, it would, you know, it's in the best interest for First Nations to, you know, make an agreement or become owners of these projects because uh, we also have a seat at the table. Uh, we're not sitting on the outside of the fence or outside protesting or anything like that and trying to get our demands heard where nothing gets done about it. And here we are now, we have an opportunity. We have industry sitting at the table. We have government sitting at the table and we voice our concerns out and uh, we make sure that uh, we are well heard and that these issues are not gone away yet. And the, the fight continues today and will continue on tomorrow for the next generations to come. The fight will continue. That from Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewa First Nation. Chief, I know you have an important meeting that starts literally right now. So we're very grateful for your availability. Thanks for making the time to join us. Just blame me. If they give you hell, you just blame me. Uh, that's Dr. John O'Connor. Uh, Dr. O'Connor, the recipient of the inaugural Dr. Peter Bryce Prize. And that's uh, awarded uh, by our uh, panelist, James Turk, in the Center for Free Expression at Ryerson. You know, look at that. Well-deserved, uh. doctor. Doctor, you keep throwing punches. Uh, and you stay in touch with this show. We've got our audience right now all riled up saying, you let us know what we need to do to make this happen. Uh, we'll talk about advocacy in just a moment. Gentlemen, thank you for your availability today. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Ryan. Thank I you. just want to say congratulations to Dr. John O'Connor. Uh, it's been a hell of a trip and we're still on it. We're still absolutely no turning back. Well, I'll tell you no, what, you know, surrender. gentlemen, we'll just we'll bring you back. OK, we'll keep this conversation going and, and it'll be our honor to bring you back on the show and check back in on this story. Thank you for this. Uh, again, uh, Chief Allen Adam, he says to me, uh, he, he says uh, his team says, you know, yeah, he can make himself available. They said, but the only thing is he has an extremely important meeting at 9 a.m. and he can't be late. And I said, I promise. So, OK, so we got we got to keep these promises, Sam, or else we're not going to get these interviews again. But we sure appreciate that. I mean, on our on our live chat right now, 
Um, this is amazing. I mean, people are just saying, what can we do? What do we need to do? How can we make this happen? I mean, let me tell you, number one, number one, what you need to do is is you you need to write letters and start calling. And, and I find Twitter to be particularly effective. Battles are rarely fought and won exclusively on Twitter. But Twitter's great for getting things into the public discourse and getting things all over people's radar. You know, Facebook, two other social media, talk to your friends. The MLAs in this area, the premier's office need to hear about this. The prime minister needs to hear about this. Doc, uh, you know, Minister Seamus O'Regan, who's with us on Friday, Minister of Natural Resources, federal minister, needs to hear about this. Patty Haidu, federal minister of health, needs to hear about this. Uh, Tyler Shandro, provincial minister of health, needs to hear about this. Sonia Savage, minister of energy, right? So MLAs, ministers, premier, prime minister. That's where we start. And we'll make a commitment to you that we'll continue to follow this story and bring you conversations like this. Uh, these are, I mean, when you talk about real talk, these are the types of conversations that need to happen. How about that from Chief Adam that said, you know, there's these open pit mines that are set to open your, you know, bigger communities, non-indigenous communities, and people are having real problems with them. He says they didn't, they didn't seem to have much of a problem with them when they were 60 kilometers away, which was basically in our own backyard. Nobody seemed to have problems then. The results of this study, I mean, just Google yourself, Fort Chipewan cancer, just just you, you can spend hours reading it. And a lot of it is anecdotal people saying, you know, I look around my community and I see a lot of cancers. It's not just cancer. It's these rare cancers that Dr. O'Connor was talking about. That's what raises people's eyebrows, too, is these rare cancers, you know, should be one in a million or one in 100,000, except for you have multiple cases in a small community. So there's the anecdotal evidence, and then there's that report that we cited, uh, researchers, including from the University of Manitoba back in 2014, that looked into this, that concluded at that time that, number one, there was undeniable evidence that this type of thing was happening, that there was, that there was something to these assertions, there was something to these concerns, and number two, that government needed to do something about it. At that time, Fred Horn was Alberta's health minister, said that the province hadn't seen the report, but would review its findings. At that time, Minister Horn said, and I don't want to be unfair to Minister Horn, but I mean, this quote, you know, the minister says, the thing I would say and I want to emphasize is that as health minister, I really sympathize with any community concerned about the health of its members. <laughs> OK. And what? I mean, if you know, you sympathize, what are you going to do about it? I'm not putting this on the shoulders of former minister Fred Horn, but I am saying that there's uh, undeniable evidence here that there's something going on and it demands investigation. I've got another comment here. I'm always I'm always happy to bring these up. Kelly Joe Aldworth says using indigenous Canadians infers ownership. Please use indigenous people in Canada. Uh, black people say african-american black canadian I, I really listen guys i'm happy to have these conversations it gets to a point where it's like uh, I'm indigenous they're not canadians someone wrote in earlier and said please don't say canada's indigenous people which i thought okay because that that to me sounds like if you said okay like canada's men's hockey team it's it's the hockey team that belongs to canada canada's indigenous people so i went okay but indigenous canadians you saying that they're not canadians this is my initial reading of the comment and my initial response to the comment. In my mind, indigenous people here are Canadians. And I'm a Canadian, and that doesn't infer ownership of me. 
Hmm. It's not the point of this conversation, but I'm ha- the, the comment just kind of popped up right here in front of me, and I'm happy to respond to it. You can let me know what you think. Um, and, and actually, as a matter of fact, Haas says that's split in hairs. Um, uh, ETC says it's indigenous people. Um, says Canadian and Canada are colonial terms. Well, okay. Okay. I'm not trying to come across as an asshole here, and I just did a conversation about this community, but... I, um, uh, Oh, boy. Happy to talk about Canada's colonial past. That's undeniable. And we do talk about it, but it is called Canada. I don't know what you want me to call it. It's called Canada. Um, Shauna says somebody needs to go all Aaron Brockovich up on the tar sands. I mean, it sounds to me like that's exactly what this demands. Okay, we're going to talk about psychedelics and mental health in just a second. I want to remind you that Friesen Brothers is getting set to open the doors on their 15th Alberta location tomorrow what tomorrow all right sam they're gonna have the smash burger station going they're gonna be pouring cra- they, they have like a thousand things to promote there and i keep coming back to smash burgers and craft beer so, so i get tomorrow off right that's that's the plan here <laughs> yeah. i'll tell you what i'll tell you what after the show tomorrow i encourage you to go check out freezing brothers okay, How's okay. That? i'll do that yeah south side of plan. edmonton just off the anthony henday at rabbit hill road uh, Friesen Brothers has been proudly contributing to Alberta communities for more than 60 years. Their founder, Frank Loveson, a, an officer of the Order of Canada. And I know that he and his family, uh, is, you know, his sons have been working hard on this. And, and uh, the entire crew is really excited to welcome Albertans into this store. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. We also wanted to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, there's six of those locations They want you to know about their two for $5 treat night. So after 8 p.m. every night, after 8 p.m. for five bucks, you can mix and match any two medium dipped cones and sundaes. So any two medium dipped cones and sundaes for five bucks as part of treat night for real talkers at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Sam, because I think our panelists are ready to go um, and, and because our newscast is, is stuff that I can cover after the fact and, and because we've sort of extended these conversations, why don't we just jump right into the roundtable? We'll get to some headlines coming up in just a bit, but we've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. How much do you know about psychedelics? If, if somebody talks about psilocybin, if somebody talks about ayahuasca, how much do you know about, first of all, what they are, what they do? And the benefits they can bring. Well, this has been on our radar for a while, and we're really excited that these three panelists have agreed to join us uh, this morning. Uh, Jasmine Perosic is a board member with the Canadian Psychedelic Association. She's an indigenous woman who studies plant medicine of the Amazon and boreal forests, as well as Western methodologies of medicine, acting as a bridge between modalities. Uh, Jasmine, welcome to Real Talk. We're thrilled to have you here with us this morning. Thanks for having me. You got it. Dr. Peter Silverstone is a familiar face to real talkers. He's president and well, he's a psychiatrist. He's president and CEO of Silotech, a new company he's just formed uh, to provide unique solutions for mental health problems by combining organic psilocybin mushrooms with e-clinics, with online clinics. He's a professor of psychiatry as well at the University of Alberta and a personal friend of mine. Doctor, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Brian. 
Thanks for having me on again. It's uh, it's an exciting time, and I'm looking forward to getting into the conversation. Well, Doctor, you're the one that put this on my radar. Probably, I'm going to say two years ago. Uh, we we you, you first planted the seed, and you said we need to at some point have a conversation about this. So I'm excited about this. Ryan Hook, rounding out our panel today, is an an Edmonton-born but Victoria-based uh, writer and a musician. He's currently working as a journalist with Victoria Buzz. You may have read his previous work in View Weekly, Beat Route, Exclaim Magazine. Oh, and by the way, he's getting set to release a reggae-inspired EP with his band Baby Boy this spring. This guy's got his hand in a lot of pots. Ryan Hook, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And I'm really stoked to talk to the panel as well. You got it. Well, I want to I open the conversation uh, in the order that I introduced you. So, Jasmine, I wanna, to you first, I mean, we've got a, a nice amount of time for this conversation to breathe. I want to encourage the three of you to interact with one another. You don't have to wait for me to call on you. When we talk about psychedelics and when we talk about how people are using them for their benefit, for, for mental health or for other purposes, where do you think we need to start the conversation? How would you sort of lay the groundwork for this? That's a big question. Um, I, I like to talk about the, the, the current kind of legal, not legalization, but the current uh, mental acceptance of psychedelics for healing because there's very few options um, that are very effective, as effective as psychedelics in general. So uh, I hope that we can continue to talk about um, the efficacy and and to, to qualify, qualify um, the use of psychedelics because, uh, you know, the war on drugs really tore a strip on on being able to use uh, many of these compounds. So uh, we're very fortunate in our country to be able to um, employ a lot of these methods for people at end of life at this point. And uh, a lot of the research with Johns Hopkins um, to, to use some of the psychedelics for major depressive disorders and the efficacy that has been shown there, I, I think we need to, to, to kind of change our minds. Uh, many of the populations in, in Canada, we need to change our minds about, about how to use and, and its, its availability, its efficacy. Uh, I, I want to bring it above ground because there's a lot of underground groups that that help others for for these disorders. Um, but it'd be great if it be, could become above ground. So I, I hope that this will help facilitate that. Uh, doctor, I think that she's making a great point. Uh, Jasmine is out of the gates because a lot of people probably are tuning in right now. And in the first three minutes, they're trying to determine are these guys seriously talking about magic mushrooms like people chomping down on magic mushrooms as opposed to taking their depression medication? So 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 how would you build on what Jasmine just said? So, I mean, <clears throat> great question and, and uh, certainly enjoyed Jasmine's uh, insights. Uh, this is a fascinating area. I'm, I'm basically a hardcore neuroscientist. I mean, if you go back, uh, I started working in this area, brain and uh, drugs in the brain, at least 25 years ago at Oxford when I started looking at 
serotonin, one of the compounds we'll talk about with uh, some stimulants. And so I've been doing this for 25 years, but I'm actually immersed even more, Ryan, because you may not know, uh, but my father was a professor of psychiatry and literally wrote one of the first textbooks on drugs and the brain. So I've been sort of thinking and knowing and hearing about, you know, uh, compounds in the brain for many, many years. Uh, even I'm, I'm old enough to know when they were talked about uh, before they were not uh uh, made illegal. So it, it's a fascinating story. And I think that there are two parts to it. And I, I'm sure we'll come to both. But it's what makes it so interesting, as I say, is that is that the science has really caught up with some of the clinical evidence, caught up on catching up with some of the experiences that people describe. And it's really interesting to see. So if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, certainly, I'd have said, there's no question that these compounds have an impact upon mental health. Uh, uh, I, let me just give you an example. I bought I bought an empty mug as my prop. This is my prop for today. Uh, and I want you to imagine, because a lot of people misunderstand about, you know, what, what we're doing. If you take a substance, and I'll use psilocybin, but let's compare it to alcohol, which everybody knows. If you fill this with whiskey and you drink it, it will have an effect on your brain. Is it a good effect? Is it a bad effect? You know, uh, if you fill it with light beer, it'll have a different effect on on your brain it'll it'll have it'll have an effect if you fill it with water then it won't now in a sense these compounds have been like that there's no question that at high dose they've had an effect on the brain we talk about magic mushrooms there's a whole variety of other forms uh, jasmine was talking about one there's no question they have an effect on the brain the question is is it a beneficial effect? And I think the key here is that we must understand, and this is something that I think isn't clearly understood. These drugs have an effect on the brain, but that alone is not therapeutic. You have to combine that effect on the brain with appropriate psychotherapy. And when you put those two together, you get this dramatic effect in many people that really can be quite striking. And you will find story after story of the anecdotal effects of, of a large dose along with combined psychotherapy. And, and Jasmine was talking about a study. There was a great study out of Johns Hopkins from November of last year. It looked at people with major depression who had this process and those who didn't. And it, it was dramatic. The responses were, were dramatic, long-lasting, and so on. Now, does it cure everybody? Almost certainly not. Will it work for everything? Almost certainly not. But will it work for some people who can't otherwise get treatments? That's what I strongly believe. And Jasmine mentioned one of those indications, end of life. Another is post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, we, just the, the previous uh, panel, uh, obviously, lots of traumas and lots of stress. We've got very little for that. Maybe this treatments work. And I think they do. As I said, depression, severe anxiety. Then you've got... The analogy I'll come back to, essentially, that's taking the kind of whiskey dose, the strong dose plus psychotherapy. But what about the mild dose, the smaller dose called microdosing? Does that do anything? And there's more dispute about that because it doesn't have the dramatic effects on the brain. But again, there's very intriguing evidence that low dose microdosing, again, plus psychotherapy. I don't just want to say go off and take a few mushrooms and your problems will be solved. That's actually not the evidence. But this combined with the right psychotherapy, again, can help 
people. And what's fascinating about this, and this is this gets me really excited because this is where the neuroscience really kicks in. And I apologize to Ryan and Jasmine because I, I do want to set the stage for the subsequent discussion about, about why we're so excited about it. Because the neuroscience has had some really intriguing findings. So I'm going to dive into that, Ryan. Uh, I would normally apologize for talking so much, but I've listened to you long enough say, no, 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 we've got plenty of time. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep, keep driving ahead. Uh, because this is key. I mean, this is so exciting. What's exciting? These compounds act on a serotonin receptor called 5-HT2A. 5-HT is the chemical name for serotonin. And this specific receptor is a 2A receptor. And I was lucky enough back in Oxford 25, 30 years ago to be working with one of the guys who first described this in the brain. So we've known about this, but it's the recent evidence that's so exciting because it turns out that this particular receptor has two major effects. One is on something called the default mode network, which we all experience, but don't think about it. It's when our brain basically switches down and wanders off. You know, it's called the default mode, how brain goes into default mode and, and wanders off and seems to impact there. And secondly, and very excitingly, within the cell, there's a chemical that stimulates brain growth and increased connections technical name is BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Doesn't matter. But BDNF is stimulated by 5-HT2A, which of course is stimulated by psychedelics. So what's really exciting and what I find uh, incredibly optimistic about this area is that the neuroscience is now telling us that areas of the brain which may not be functioning 100%, separately we published a study just a few weeks ago showing how important those areas are that these areas may be switched back on by these psychedelics acting to promote nerve growth and nerve uh, uh, signaling and pathways. And if that's true, and again, we, we need to do more evidence. We're a scientist. There's never enough research. Uh, if it turns out to be correct, that will explain, I think, why the range of possibilities for these compounds is so much larger. They are not just antidepressants or anti-anxiety or anti-anything. What they do, I think, is at a more fundamental level. They allow the potential for some brain regrowth in regions of the brain that control mood, resiliency, anxiety, our ability to cope. At higher doses, they open doorways that allow us with psychotherapy, I'm going to emphasize this again, with psychotherapy to really relearn. And it's possible that the ability to have new neural connections is why that change gets kind of locked in. But the science, and so I apologize to my, my fellow panelists for going on, but I have to explain, the science is why myself as a hardcore neuroscientist, founded Silatech uh, because we want to be able to pro provide appropriate solutions. And I'll talk in a bit. I'm going to stop talking now because I'm a prof. Stopping me talking is always the hard thing. Uh, <laughs> Peter, uh, you're, you're hosting it, yourself. You're, you're checking, balancing <laughs> yourself. <laughs> okay, well, I'll stop in a minute because there's one other thing I'm going to come to about why what Silatech does to allow people to uh, to do it. But I, 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 I've read some of Ryan's stuff, really interesting. And I think what Jasmine's doing is really fascinating. And I think what she talked about initially, and we'll hear talk, Ryan talk about is, is we're taking old experiences. I mean, humans have used these substances for over 5,000 years, probably documented evidence. And so, you know, we know they do something, but how can we, how can we harness that in the model world, modern world? And the need is huge. My final comment before I stop is, 
they did a survey in the US recently. It was a large survey, and I think it's similar to Canada. Right now, and I know the pandemic's making it worse, but right now, 40%, 40% of adults in North America have significant symptoms of anxiety, depression, or major stress. 40% of adults. So the need is huge. And we're hoping that this will really contribute to solutions for people. Okay, 40, that's enough. I mean, 40, 40%, I mean, you know, virtually on average, at least on average, at least one person in every household in Canada uh, to paint a picture. Um, Scott is watching in this morning. He says psychedelics truly are fascinating. Some people say that they can open up a different level of consciousness. I can't wait to talk to Jasmine about, uh, about ayahuasca. Um, Connor McCannabis is watching. says we've known for decades and decades that psychedelics can help mental health. And then we just stopped all research. Uh, Ryan, as a journalist, as a storyteller, how did this wind up on your radar and what's been driving the, the, the type of deep dives that you've been doing? Well, I think I could stand up on my soapbox as like a mad hatter, Timothy Leary, and be like, yeah, everyone should do it. But I kind of like to take the perspective of, uh, a neuropharmacological, uh, neuropharmacological point of view, which is the effect the drug has on the nervous system. And I like to take the harm reduction point of view. And I take those points of view because of my experiences at music festivals, of my personal experiences. And I always kind of try to balance the perspectives of risk and benefit. So with psychedelics, particularly, there are concerns, much like Dr. Silverstone said, you know, it's not going to work perfectly for everybody, but it might help some. So there are concerns like family mental health history um, and things that you need to think about before you go into it. So what Timothy Leary said was like set and setting. So I kind of was introduced to psychedelics in a set and setting that was kind of conducive to my experience, my um, history and Everything that balanced that out was just perfect for me. It was a good alchemy. But not everyone has afforded that opportunity. And if given in the wrong circumstances, uh, it might leave someone susceptible to something uh, maybe tragic. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that that obviously we'll need to get into and sort of like responsible, uh, you know, do I use the word use, I guess? Respond, and we can talk about that. And I'm sure that all three of you can can get into that uh, jasmine you have i mean your your background is fascinating i'm realizing that we probably realistically need five hours for this round table but we'll do our best to to sum this up but your 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 background as an indigenous woman and and then the work that you do as well with with i mean how did you describe it and you know i asked you to provide a bio you sort of like have have found a way of you know your your you know, you you act a, you act as a bridge between modalities, right? Between in, in indigenous traditions and Western methodologies of medicine. How does that actually play out? I mean, what a what a what a, a holistic understanding. I think more people would benefit from that. But wh what does that translate into for you on a service delivery front? Uh, well, I guess. You know, when I was in university, I, I had a really tough time because I, I got really spiritual with a lot of my professors. And I was in a, a heavy STEM field school, so Lakehead University. They're very strict. And um, many of my perspectives were, were not necessarily accepted. So I was forced into uh, having to explain scientifically what I was talking about when I said that there's a spirit in the plant or the spirit helps us to heal. So I had to dive into a lot of 
like the, the neurophysiology to be able to explain a lot of it. And I still don't totally understand because that's a, that's a lifelong process to understand um, neuroscience, like, like Dr. Silverstone here. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot. So uh, when I bridge both, you know what, it, it's tough because it's a rocky bridge between um, like traditional STEM science and uh, spiritual continuity. Uh, and it, it seems, you know, I, I, I speak gently about it especially when I talk to others and others in First Nation communities, because everyone knows in, in the communities that this is, this is what the plants are and this is how the plants help us to heal is, is through their spirit. But there's this scientific um, aspects of many of the, the, the plants that we use. So, for example, there's a, there's a plant that we use, we, I call it Wike, and it's a Chorus Calamus Variation Americanus. And I had to learn all of that terrible Latin <laughs> to be able to explain a lot of this stuff. Um, but there's, there's many books like by Christian Ratch and, and um, Schultes. There's one book that said that this particular plant, uh, if you eat 10 inches of it, it produces a psychedelic effect. But I know that plant very well. Um, it does not do that. It does not. It doesn't do that. And I think that the 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 researchers who were asking the they said the Northern Cree of Manitoba uh, about psychedelic plants. I think an elder was just making fun of them, saying, "Yeah, <laughs> eat ten inches of this plant, and then really you're gonna you're gonna burn your tummy. <laughs> like it's gonna it's gonna hurt uh, to have that much of this particular plant." So. When I when I explain to others about the efficacy of this specific plant, I always note number a number of the compounds that are are inside of the plant. So like eucalyptol, menthol, menthol, um, uh, caryophyllene, things like that that you would hear even in the cannabis world, and and many of the the compounds that are in the cannabis world that are advertised when you go to the store. Like there's many terpenes in here, limonene, and they're really just talking about scents. Um, and many of these scents uh, are very effective um, to calm, like limonene. It, it's very calming. And, and so I've had to kind of employ th those ideas when I'm explaining um, how the plants are effective uh, in the body. Jasmine. In yeah. I mean, it's been fascinating for me, the journey, because I'm a hardcore neuroscientist. So I would yeah. be the, the kind of skeptical. I mean, what you say is fascinating, but when and and certainly I understand uh, the the link that people have with spirituality to the psychedelics because there's numerous experiences of uh, of people having enormous spiritual experience, particularly with a high dose, and, and we know that goes back thousands of years. But you said intriguingly the spirituality of the of the plants themselves, and that's. That's a, a non-Western belief system. I'm not in any way saying it, it's wrong. And so trying to translate that into kind of my world, the neurochemical world, I can understand that being really difficult. And so kind of on behalf of all those who might have given you a hard time, I'm apologizing because I think if you had seen me some years ago, I'd have said, oh, yeah, blah, blah. and now I've been convinced that the data is is real. And, and I explain it in, in, you know, in hardcore neurosciences terms, but there is something there. I don't know what it is, and we can't fully explain it. But I think 
uh, your insights are really valuable. Well, I want to, yeah. and I want to, I want to jump in. I don't mean to interrupt the two of you, but I, but I want to set the stage here. And I know that Ryan can comment on it as well as the cultural side of this. And we need to talk about legalization and employing it and, and, and talk about guided journeys, right? I mean, Peter, you're, you're being very clear about how important psychotherapy is along with employing these substances. Uh, Jasmine, I want to talk to you about, about the ayahuasca journey, which is completely different. Um, a friend of mine has recently participated um, as he heals himself from his trauma and he can't say enough about it. I, I said that to you. I said, my friend just went on an ayahuasca journey. The first thing you said to me, Jasmine, when we spoke, you said, well, why haven't you? That was like the first thing you said to me, which I loved. So you're pushing me. Um, we'll be back with our panelists in just a second. I wanted to remind you that the team at McBain Camera has just come on board as a builder of Real Talk and we're thrilled to have them here. Uh, McBain with six locations across, pardon me, seven locations across the province of Alberta. You can live chat with their team members anytime in person where the stores are safe and ready to go distance and masked or you can check out mcbainecamera.com it's where you'll find that exceptional panasonic dc g9 camera this thing is built for speed the g9 can lock its focus in a fraction of a second it can shoot up to 20 frames per second in afc with its five axis image stabilization so you can get tack sharp photos even shooting handheld don't have a tripod no problem when you order a panasonic g9 right now at mcbainecamera.com enter the promo code real talk one word real talk and they'll give you a free spare battery with your order every time i say that sam brooks just pops up he's like free spare battery it's probably the best thing they could give you with that camera there you go gonna want a spare battery at mcbainecamera.com i love it if sam gives his stamp of approval the stamp of approval has been granted the team at eden landscaping wants to talk to you as they have been with their satisfied clients for more than 20 years whether it's a gazebo maybe an outdoor kitchen a swim spa a retaining wall maybe you want one of those beautiful intricate like stone or brick pathways they do it you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca it's never too early to get planning on how you will manifest that dream space in your front back or both yards with eden landscaping uh very excited to be with our panelists dr peter silverstone ryan hook and jasmine parazic uh, i wanted to read this email that we received this is this is a tough one to read um she signs off a losing hope albertan uh we'll call her celine Celine says, I'm a 34 uh, year old wife and mother. Uh, nowadays, I can't think of myself as much more than that. Besides a wife and mother, I'm, I'm no more than my illness now. I suffer from something called chronic cluster headaches. Uh, these are described as suicide headaches, uh, pain worse than childbirth. I know, she says, a pain that makes me pace the house screaming, smashing my head against the wall, wondering what I did so wrong to have to endure such agony day after day. I use home oxygen for pain management, opiates, an injectable medicine that costs $4,000 a month and works half the time. Other medications that are supposed to reduce the frequency, nasal sprays. My cluster headaches come three to six times a day. I don't get days off. They've caused depression, suicidal tendencies, social and general anxiety. My neurologist has recommended micro dosing of magic mushrooms and says that there have been some small studies done and she's seen success in patients with it stopping the attacks, but she can't legally recommend it. But if I know where to get it, if I know where to go buy some and try it, I've always been a law abiding citizen. To be honest, I feel scared, but I'm also feeling some hope for the first time in a long time. I also feel angry that a doctor could have knowledge of a treatment that could end my suffering, but it could land me in jail. 
if I got caught buying it, let alone ruin my reputation. I'm not dying, but I feel like I'm dying over and over again every day. I'm not dying, but I feel like I'm dying over and over again every day. I have been what I would call a walking pharmacy. I'm a lab rat. I've drained our life savings to shorten my suffering. And I feel like the public looks at me with shame because I can't control my actions with such intolerable pain. I hope your discussions on this topic can include this email and remember people that are suffering. If there's the slightest chance that psilocybin can stop my cluster headaches, I deserve the chance to try that from a losing hope, Albertan. Dr. Silverstone, I want to put this in front of you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and obviously, as I said, I actually ended up doing my doctoral thesis in depression in the medically ill. And, uh, the, and of course, I still see patients and chronic pain and chronic me- medical problems lead to tremendous psychological problems no surprise there and and it is very difficult uh cluster headaches involve serotonin to a large degree uh and so there is certainly hope ryan i sent a link to a to a study if you wanted you could you could give me control and i could share the screen but if you could pull up the screen the reason i'm saying this is very specific to this particular question because one of the things uh that we will be doing at silotech uh, that there's two parts to this one is uh providing high quality product and and for a variety of reasons i can go into i believe that uh thank you very much ryan i believe that uh psilocybin is the most appropriate we can we can talk about why uh if you scroll down you'll see the areas of research we're, we're planning to study are much more extensive than others and as ryan hovers over each of those you will see different conditions i think the range of possibilities here is huge and unlike i think any other company we will be studying these areas and i think under pain there is actually a, a, a drop down on headache that's why i say that uh if you're able to go over that one ryan uh and i think that's headache and uh under neuropsychiatric we're looking hopefully at a whole range of issues including potentially attention deficit disorder does it help autism and other things and the reason i think it is worth studying and i want to emphasize studying we're not confirming or saying it, it's proven yet is that the range of possibilities here are so huge and so we will be starting studies later this year and there's actually a link on that page that ryan just showed that would allow you if you're interested just to send us your email and we will keep in touch so that when we do start studies you are available and i think you can see the red button there and that just takes you to a form and the goal is to try and make people aware that this is happening and so as soon as we start studies uh, you'll be out of the gate so the other thing we're doing and i'm just talking about why silotech is different and i believe it's different i know it's different is because i, I spoke about the product which uh, in our case is psilocybin which i personally uh, think is the most appropriate we, we can come to pros and cons of others but also the psychological support and here's the key because how do you provide psychological support that's standard and effective. And what we're doing, which nobody else is doing, is we have designed a very comprehensive e-clinic program for more intense, severe programs when you're taking the high dose, the psychedelic experience, we're using a virtual reality experience which is standardized. And so you will get a, a high quality experience. Doesn't matter which psychologist's office you're in. It's the same standardized, high quality, tested version that we're using artificial intelligence to ensure that each individual gets the best benefit and we're having biofeedback it's a very unique program and secondly we're looking at a we have a very unique e-clinic program for those at home who are microdosing 
So what we've done, and the reason we've been working on this for 18 months uh, before we wanted to come out with this, was putting together not just the high-quality organic psilocybin, but how we can combine that with an e-clinic. That, that makes us very unique because the e-clinic is both for severe and home-based. Uh, and so I, I'm very excited that hopefully we can at least provide options. Uh, and this is really, you, you ask about a call to action, and I know you mentioned it earlier with, with uh, the, the oil sands and uh, yeah. what's happening in terms of the water. But the call to action here is simple. Health Canada allows us to do these studies. That's great. We will be doing these studies and getting Health Canada authorization. But as noted, they do not yet allow people to prescribe. Now, there are a number of clinics popping up, and, and I'm honestly very guarded about those clinics. They're non-standardized, and there's all kinds of issues potentially about those. But I do believe Health Canada should authorize proven tested programs they should do as they did for medical cannabis it should be licensed you should be able to apply your family doctor or your specialist should be able to say this is an appropriate uh tool I'll, i won't say it's just medication because it's not it's it's the combination of both the the product and the or, or the psychedelic and the appropriate psychological support but that is a tool that can potentially help hundreds of thousands of people we need to test it yes yeah we need to prove it yes but it needs to be available i agree with you a hundred percent um we're getting a lot of interest in ayahuasca so jasmine we're going to get you to, to to take us on that journey at, at least descriptively uh in just a moment but ryan you've written a lot i mean this 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 uh email here from from uh from celine uh we called her uh talks about the the legal angle here and a lot of people in our live chat are saying that, that, that you know Whatever. We shouldn't condone that on this show. But, but you know, people are saying, hey, listen, we can give her a yeah. gift of mushrooms and she can give me a gift of money. Or we can people are saying other people are saying we understand <laughs> these people are saying we understand cluster headaches and, and, and you should do whatever you need uh, to address these because they could be horrific pain. You've talked a lot about and you've done some work into looking into a sort of cultural pushback on this type of thing. I know you've written about Nixon's war on drugs and you've specifically looked at decriminalization of psychedelics. Um, Portugal's and, and obviously people talk a lot about Portugal, but Colorado and Oregon as well, Ryan, um, on that front, what, what have you learned through the course of your research? Yeah, what I've learned is kind of like the social climate behind uh, psychedelics is changing. So people are becoming more familiar with it. Uh, it's not this underground thing anymore. It is becoming a pop culture thing. And it did in the 60s and the 70s with uh, you know, Timothy Leary and Richard Halpert. Um, but then after Nixon's war on drugs, which, you know, um, scheduled psychedelics as a schedule one drug, uh, along with opiates, um, it kind of threw it under into the underground where the only, um, the only thing you saw from psychedelics was from TV shows or movies where it was scary or, or it just wasn't something that you could comprehend. And if you can't comprehend it, then it's scary. And lately we've seen kind of Canada adopt uh, the amendment to the Controlled Substances Act, uh, subsection 56.1, which Dr. Silverstone talked about, uh, which allows the health minister to exempt the substance if it's necessary for medical or scientific purposes. So for the case of the uh, Celine who emailed you, uh, this is great for her and people like Dr. Silverstone are working to amend stuff like this. And I was actually curious um, where Dr. Silverstone 
sees the amendments going further, because obviously it seems like you're talking about legalization, um, which Colorado and Oregon have seen just this past year or so since quarantine even. Uh, so I was actually curious to Dr. Silverstone. So, oh, to- I, I'll, I'll happily jump in. Okay, hang on, though, guys. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it. But I, Jasmine's been sitting there for like 20 minutes. So I want <laughs> to we've, we've got a, a moment, uh, a comment here from Wigwith who says, I would absolutely love to try a guided ayahuasca trip. Shamans have used the roots for healing since the beginning of time. And one thing lost in our world oftentimes is our spiritual connection. Now, this is a completely different thing that we're talking about here, Jasmine. But for people that are, I mean, if you know ayahuasca, I mean, people that have that have gone on these journeys many times will swear by them and say they've changed their lives. Can you help us understand what this is all about and what that journey looks like? Yeah, it definitely changed my life. I don't think I would be sitting here in front of you folks having enough confidence to to speak about my experience at all. Uh, I was very timid, um, held back kind of woman, and, and I wasn't following my heart. And what, what's great about ayahuasca is that I, I consider it it's a heart medicine. So anybody who takes any heart medications, especially beta blockers, you would never take ayahuasca. Like it's it's not recommended for a, a number of, of reasons that, that science would tell you about. Um, but going through an ayahuasca experience, um, in the tradition that I was taught was an Ashaninga tradition by Maestro Juan Flores Salazar of the Peruvian Amazon in Mayantuyaku. And Mayantuyaku is a place where the, the river boils at like 90 degrees Celsius on average. And if it rains enough, he'll let us swim in it just for maybe 20 minutes. Um, but Hebrew is a specific type of ayahuasca. And when someone says to ayahuasca, a lot of the times, um, many different teachers in, in the Amazon and in, in, in Brazil, they'll be blended medicine. So they'll have, they'll have the ayahuasca plant as well as the chacruna plant. And that's what we refer to as camarampi in the tradition that I was taught. Uh, it means puking snakes, which is... <laughs> It, it's frightening. It sounds frightening, but it's not, it's not really, it's wonderful. Um, but there's many other admixtures. Like some people add things like uh, plants that have scopolamine uh, to get the visionary aspects. So a lot of the tourists, tourist people that come in, like the, the gringos that come into the Amazon uh, are looking for those visual experiences. And that's, that's not necessarily what ayahuasca is. The teacher tells me that the, the visions are a distraction really it's like it's kind of like saying like as the plant is is kind of working giving you surgery on your back let's say it's showing you all these beautiful pictures in the front so that you're distracted and so that you can you can become um you can try to heal through your work so we say that the plants are actually healing us it's not necessarily the teacher or the person that's facilitating the ceremony it's the power of the plant that is helping you to recover now, going through an ayahuasca experience, um, now, if, when I was in Peru and since lockdown, it's been uh, just such a tragedy that I can't travel. Uh, but going through a ceremony at the Boiling River, there's lots of steam, much steam, and, and we sing about the steam. And, and I was taught to sing a lot of these um, spirits into the ceremony, let's say. So not scientific at all. And... So when you, you would drink this plant and, and 
you drink these two compounds that are mixed together and there we were taught how to brew this in a specific way and the effects take place maybe an hour in and you feel rejuvenated but a lot of the time ayahuasca kind of feels like you're getting squished 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 and then you pop that's I guess that's the best way I could explain it because many people feel a lot of anxiety with ayahuasca, but really it's just a hug. It's like these plants come in and they're, they're hugging you and helping you to get through your traumas. So while you're going through a lot of the ayahuasca ceremony, you're forced to face your traumas. You're forced to face whatever it is. If you were called this or that when you were a kid, you know, 30 years before you were, you know, sexually abused, you might have to face that, but facing it is facing the truth. And the truth is what is, is helping you to recover, helping us to recover. And that's what helped me to recover. So I was able to learn how to sing. Like I didn't know I wanted to sing, but I sing many, many different songs, ikros we call them. And many of the plants, um, we, we do dietas. So I'll drink a plant three times a day for at least 10 days, sometimes up to some people do it for years. Um, and then we drink the ayahuasca and the ayahuasca is like the activator and it activates the plants that you had been ingesting during the day. So a plant that you can ingest during the day is something like uh, tamamori. And tamamori uh, helps us to recover trauma. It's very, very excellent. It's a very sweet plant that that hugs you and hugs your spirit. And the ayahuasca in the ceremony would activate that plant. And, you know, there, there's no explanation for this other than the way I'm, I'm speaking about it. Everybody has their experience, but this is what's actually going on in, in my, when I'm thinking about how to explain it is the plants are doing the work for me. So I, I did this CBC Radio One one time, and I tried to explain this to them, and they were not—they were not having it. They were not having my explanation of of how the plants work um, in a traditional perspective. So it's not just in South America that people look at plants like that. It's here in here in Canada that we look at plants like that. They're the things that are causing these effects. These spirits—they're—they're they're alive. They're people. Like tobacco is a person or people or it, well actually it was a, a man before and he drank he ate enough tobacco he, that he became tobacco and then so tobacco has this spirit and tobacco is not indigenous to Canada it, it is absolutely not maybe central you know Central America and South America but there's a trade route from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to my lake on Lake of the Woods here and so the reason why we have tobacco is because we've always welcomed these medicines in our communities. And it's only as of late that many indigenous people are like, well, that's not our medicine. Ayahuasca is not our medicine. And I'm like, but wait, neither is tobacco. So let's think about, you know, what we've done. Not we can't say historically, we have to say prehistorically because historic is referring to, you know, all the time after Columbus came to the continent. It's all prehistory. We have a large history that was just completely wiped out. And that's, that's colonization. So what I'm doing with the ayahuasca is you, re in, you rediscover your own culture through your blood memory. 
And that's what the ayahuasca does. But that's what psilocybin does as well, because it has this very strong spirit that can produce these effects and help you to connect with your, you know, people that passed away, help you to connect with, with even your grief so that you can recover. So I, I hope this, I could go on and on. Well, I know like, you could, Jasmine, and we get, and like I said, we need five hours and, and I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're at what we're really attempting to do here and talking about psychedelics and, and I'll ask, let Dr. Silverstone comment on this is that we're, really we're talking about many different things. I mean, you know, Peter, you used the example of pouring whiskey into a glass. It would be like, you know, we're bringing in three experts to try to talk about wine, beer and whiskey all in the same conversation, right? Which, which is very difficult to do. Uh, I want to reference and, and, and our, our listeners, uh, our viewers can can check this out themselves at nature.com. It was a study published uh, back in March, March 5th of 2020 uh, effects of ayahuasca on mental health and quality of life and naive users. Uh, and, and it describes ayahuasca as a hallucinogenic decoction uses traditional medicine in Amazonian regions. Look at this though. This is what I want to talk about after ayahuasca use more than 80% of subjects showed clinical improvements that persisted at six months, 80%. Doctor, is there room for this as well in your world? Uh, so I talk about psychedelics. Uh, I particularly, as I say, psilocybin is the one I, I, I think is probably the safest on balance. Uh, in fact, it's, it's the one I do feel is the safest. It's not that it's the only psychedelic. Uh, others are equally good. And the other part about Jasmine's uh, personal journey is that she had a guide. And Jasmine, I certainly don't mean to uh, impose my views on what you experienced. I'm just giving you my interpretation. So I apologize in advance. I'm really not. But from my perspective, you had an effective psychedelic and you had an effective guide, uh, which, you know, I, I, I believe you need that combination. I believe you need an effective treatment. In the, in the right dose personalized to you and what I would call psychotherapy delivered effectively and consistently. And uh, I mean, I'm not arguing if you say, okay, to get the full experience, you need to go the kind of journey you did in Peru. I've been to Peru, fantastic place, wonderful, uh, extraordinary. And, and, and you can take other experiences as well. Uh, I have a colleague who who takes people for journeys in, in places where it is legal, Jamaica, and there's, you know, or in the woods, there's lots of places that, that people get that but what i think we need to do is say okay how can we provide this widely how can we make this available safely and widely and that's why i think this this combination of psychotherapy and product given in a standardized manner from my uh you know obviously uh neuroscience background uh seems to me a way we can really scale this up and make this available to many many people with many many problems and again i'll come back to the fact you don't from my perspective, you don't have to have the high doses, the high intensity, the whiskey version. Uh, sometimes the wine or the beer version given with appropriate therapy uh, can be very, very helpful. And I think that's been part of the confusion. You know, should I microdose? Should I take a whole dose? What do I do? And so on. Um, so I think it's a huge exciting area. I'm not going to say psilocybin is the only one. Of course it's not. But I think as a therapeutic area to help people, I am super excited about psychedelics. I really yeah. am. I, I believe it's a uh, real potential. And I just Peter, want to make a, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry. Okay. I was just going to say that there's even, at least in my circles, this uh, presumption that every psychedelic experience is going to be the best one of your life. And I talked to a psychedelic integration therapist, and he says that he helped people along who had bad trips, but just, you know, had these bad trips, lived their lives, uh, continued to kind of be really distraught about them. And the therapist helps specifically even 
with those bad trips to take those higher level messages and convert them to something that you can live with, to something that you can like genuinely be with. So I think, yeah, there's always the the stigma of that it's going to be a big trip, a good trip. And then there's always going to be a bad trip as well. And I think with psychotherapy, that allows you to take those higher messages and live them into your life um, like in a conducive way. Jasmine, I wanted to right. give you a chance. I apologize. Can I just ask around very technically, quick, quickly, were those people having LSD specifically or was this a range of different products they experienced the bad trip with? Yeah, the uh, psilocybin, uh, it was psilocybin with this particular therapist. Um, Thank you. But I don't, I don't know the specifics of the people. He just said that people who had bad trips. Jasmine, Sorry to jump out. No, that's fine. That's fine. We're, we, we invite it. Uh, Jasmine, I wanted to give you a chance, first of all, to respond to what Dr. Silverstone had to say. Uh, yeah, it's just that uh, when I went down to Peru and I started my healing journey, I didn't speak Spanish and I still don't really habla espanol muy bueno. Like I still don't <laughs> understand very well. So I didn't have the same thing that a psychotherapist would conduct here in the country because it speak the language. There wasn't there. It wasn't there. What I'm telling you is that the plant has that that psychotherapy kind of um, part of it where psilocybin, it, it does have a spirit with it, but it's not as strong as ayahuasca. You ask anyone who's drank ayahuasca, they know that it's the strongest hallucinogen. That's how they feel. It's the strongest that they've ever had over LSD, ketamine, MDMA, all of it. It's just, it's extremely powerful. And I, I felt like I was guided through with ayahuasca as the teacher. Uh, and my teacher, I would ask him, you know, little things here and there, but to communicate with him was very difficult because his first language isn't even Espanol. It was Ashininga. So um, I think there's still a lot of finding out that we have to do a lot of research we have to do and a lot of accepting that the, the spirit has like the actual spirit of those plants and of the knowledge of the, those plants um, needs to be regarded in a big way. Jasmine, I was telling you about my friend who, who on his journey is, is very personal and I don't want to reveal too much because he trusted me with the details of it, but he describes his his journey. His teacher w- was a woman and he says that she told me that she was going to reach into my chest. Um, he's he's uh, learning how to move forward with and manage PTSD and, and he says she reached into my chest and she told me she was going to take my soul for a walk. And she asked me if I wanted to come. And I said, I'm going to sit here and be present. And he sat there and was present as she took his soul for a walk. And he describes this journey over a course of days, a number of days. Uh, the spiritual element of it is 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 marvelous. I mean, hearing him describe this, uh, Jasmine, you've been doing so much. I mean, you talked to me even on the phone about you're you're, you're working uh, in, in northern communities, helping people understand uh, northern First Nations diabetes strategy, integrating traditional indigenous medication. You're working with people on on MDMA assisted psychotherapy. People know it as Molly or ecstasy. I mean, I mean, really, I think that there are so many angles here. Uh, that demand more of a look, demand more research. Do you think, I mean, not not just in these communities, I would imagine you'd have a certain buy-in or a certain open-mindedness in indigenous communities to indigenous medicine and those traditions. But what about among greater society? I mean, can you, oftentimes government will act in areas where the public demands it. Um, Jasmine, do you perceive an openness or willingness from from general society to explore these traditional healing methods or the the convergence of both as you described it uh yeah I, i've seen 
you know, it's generational. There's a particular demographic that doesn't seem to be okay with the use of, of many different psychedelics that they believe because they were in the time of Nixon's war on drugs. So I'm referring to like baby boomers and I'm not trying to be talked down about it. It's that they were taught a specific thing that it was bad things and not a good way. So um, this is for everyone. Psychedelics are for everyone. There should be no divisive nature of psychedelics in general. There shouldn't be uh, a distinguishing factor other than our traditions and our languages and everybody's going to express psychedelics in in a different way. They're going to heal in a different way. And I think it's very, it's very important that we understand that, that we're really battling an idea. And, and, and from what I was taught, it's the ideas that are the spirits that we have to try to move through. So when we share a really good, you know, idea, like, like Ryan and Peter are stating, like, these are, these are really powerful ideas that can help us to recover, especially in this time with the pandemic, like, Many people are suffering mental health disorders. And I think this is what's catalyzing, you know, the stock market with the psychedelic ETFs and with everything that's going forward, everyone's searching so desperately for more during especially the pandemic. It's just the pressures of the environment are forcing us into this this renaissance. Like the renaissance is is going forward because of the pandemic, I think. I want to give each of you a chance to, to to make a closing statement. I feel like we've just we, we just got the can opener out. We didn't even open the can. We haven't even had the I mean, but but this is a wonderful start and we're pointing people in the right direction. Dr. Silverstone, I know you've got a bolt in one minute. Um, give us something to think about. Uh, so, first of all, thank you for having me on. And yes, I apologize. I have to go it's uh, fine. immediately. But uh uh, thank you for talking about an issue that is huge, uh, mental health. I mean, we all know uh, from a whole variety of different aspects how important that is. This is potentially the most exciting set of new treatments I've seen in over 25 years, and I've been involved with drugs on the brain. So I'm very excited about these possibilities, and I really hope that we get the ability to prescribe them uh, properly. So all I would ask your uh, viewers and listeners to do is write to their federal representatives and see if Canada can actually legalize it when appropriate and when safe. So thank you all. I'm going to jump off now, Ryan. No problem. Keep up the good work. And Sam, thank you for what you do in the background. Yeah, thanks, Peter. We appreciate it. Yeah, Sam Brooks, technical producer of this show, doing an amazing job. Uh, that's Dr. Peter Silverstone that's joining us and uh, that has joined us. And, and and we do have a couple more minutes here with with Jasmine Prozik and, and, of course, Ryan Hook. Uh, Ryan, I wanted to give you a chance to, to answer that same question. I mean, with regards to what I asked Jasmine, with regards to her personal experience in the communities she works with. I mean, she's doing this work week in and week out. When it comes to cultural buy-in, when it comes to the mainstream, um, obviously the mentality. I mean, you, you know, you, you you reference kind of I think the 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 Hollywoodized perception of psychedelics and how it turns into this kind of wild and swirly and scary. I mean, you know, probably the nicest or gentlest way to paint the picture would be to say sort of an Alice in Wonderland type scenario, um, and then it kind of goes downhill from there with regards to how it's portrayed. Where do you see conversations like this one here today on Real Talk going um, among members of the general public in the years to come? Yeah, I definitely see them furthering. I, I see them now just furthering. There's a lot of talk about psychedelics nowadays. Um, people are becoming more familiar with literature. They're becoming more familiar with what psilocybin is, what um, LSD, ergot, the fungus. They're becoming more familiar with exactly what 
um, psychedelics are, whereas in those kind of dark ages um, after and during the war on drugs, people had just thought of it as something scary. So I'm really excited to see the conversation becoming more present among people. I'm excited for people to get into the literature. I'm excited for people that generally, you know, the Joe Rogan uh, gym bros, you know, even they are considering <laughs> psychedelics because of, Ju of Joe Rogan. You just need these spokespeople sometimes. And I think um, uh, our panel here is a good example of that. And to end it, I just want to end with a, um, a quote. Uh, we have been to the moon. We have charted the depths of the ocean and the heart of the atom. But we have a fear of looking inward to ourselves because we sense that is where all the contradictions flow together. And that's from Terrence McKenna. He's an American botanist. I just, Jasmine just exploded into a smile. Hey, listen, I, I'm just going to say, I don't want to be unfair to the two of you because we're live right now and I'm kind of I'm kind of putting you on the spot. I asked you, uh, Jasmine, I asked you to stay till 10 Eastern or, or to, till noon Eastern, which is now, but I mean, I, I don't have to go anywhere. So I don't know if you guys can stay a few extra minutes or not. You may have other commitments, in which case it's totally. Yeah. Jasmine, can you stay for a few more minutes? Yeah, totally. Okay, great. Because because like we can do whatever the hell we want. Like we, we can talk, you know. Um, so, I mean, first of all, what, what about what about that quote uh, just made you smile so big? Well, Terrence McKenna is the psychonaut. He is the what why we consider um, psychonauts in general, like a psychonaut, like there's an astronaut who who explores outer space. But then there's a psychonaut who goes into inner space. And that is a very frightening thing because we've spent a lot of time piling a lot of crud on ourselves to avoid, avoid actually facing the truth. That's why I say the truth, like the truth is kind of like an onion layer. And, and Terrence McKenna talked about this too. And, and I think Dennis talks about it even now with the Joe Rogans is, is we are, it's like an onion layer. Like you peel and you peel and you peel. That's what they said LSD was like. Now I've never had LSD in my life. Uh, I haven't had the opportunity, but um, if it's anything like ayahuasca, because ayahuasca works on two serotonergic receptors, uh, H HT2 one and no HT2 A and B. I'm not sure that the the doctor left, so I can't say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why it's considered the most um, psychedelic and most effective psychedelic because it has uh, this effect on on a very wide range of of serotonergic receptors. So when someone talks about cluster headaches while well, my husband suffered cluster headaches and has since alleviated his cluster headaches since taking ayahuasca in South America. And so uh, there is a lot of hope out there for it because I know those are so uh, that pain is so debilitating, but for how effective ayahuasca and psilocybin and, you know, even ketamine can be ketamine for alcoholism, I think more, um, I think we need to go into inner space. We absolutely do. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Ryan, have you like through the course of this writing, um, did you, you know, when you, when you do feature writing, it's a little bit different because sometimes I, know, I, 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 I was talking to a friend the other day who said, I, he said he was watching a documentary and it was a documentary that he wanted me to watch. And he said, now it is a documentary. So it's obviously one sided. And I went, Eh, like I'm not I'm not so sure that that should just be the the assumption that it's a documentary so it's automatically one-sided. I kind of would prefer my documentaries to explore different sides of an issue. Did you plunge into the pieces here in, in your personal exploration into 
you know, uh, traditional medicines and psychedelics and mental health and culture. Did you come in with a preconceived notion and has it stuck? Did you come in with very limited knowledge and have you learned one thing in particular? Did it change your mind on anything? Yeah, so I think particularly for me, I was a kid who was into Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, and I actually just had this notion of, okay, all of my favorite artists have done this. This is the way to become one of those artists. And now as I'm getting older, um, I think I'm becoming more focused uh, into realizing like what it actually does. And my perception has changed in the sense that I have more of an understanding of why it actually helps um, people's mental health. Uh, it helps people with uh, PTSD. It helps soldiers. I talked to the psychedelic integration therapist and he had clients that were soldiers experienced P PTSD for people with chronic illnesses, for people experiencing loneliness and depression. Um, if we can shift how we think about psychedelics, psychedelics will choose to show us uh, the way how to live. But when we don't, when we have psychedelics in the dark, like we have them or have had them and have them now, people will use them in the way that they want to use them, which might not be correct. You know, like Leary said set and setting was really important. So when you have psychedelics combined with psychotherapy, you can really get this tailored experience that will um, give you what you need. Like Jasmine had with, um, with a shaman, uh, shamans also uh, were super handy and they would also use isolation, fasting, body modification. Uh, they would get in touch with these states. It was a means to teach people how to live. And that's kind of what I've learned now. Jasmine, how do you how do you find that balance with you, like in your own mind and 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 what you apply to your your own personal practice, um, as well as what you work with others? I mean, we, we've described that you're, you're working on MDMA assisted psychotherapy. You're obviously an advocate for ayahuasca. I mentioned that you've been working with Northern First Nations, talking about traditional foods and plant medicine to address um, the scourge of diabetes in some of these communities. Um, you know, I, I I know of an individual that was uh, fighting a certain type of aggressive cancer and she made the decision to go off of her chemotherapy to 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 step away from the chemicals, as she described it. And I know for a lot of people that care very deeply about her, they were devastated at this. You know, the common consensus, if I can if I can summarize, was that there's the science is there and the and, and the research is there. Millions of dollars of research has gone into these therapies. These are the best therapies you know, um, carried out by oncologists in some of the best hospitals in the world. Um, and you're ignoring all of that to take an alternative route. And it was hard for people to accept. And there certainly is. I mean, we saw it. We saw it from that email from Celine earlier where she talks about opiates and injections and all of the things that she's working on for her cluster headaches. And she's desperate. She's experiencing suicidal ideation. She's desperate for something. And her, and her neurologist, as you heard in that email, is recommending a trial of microdosing psilocybin, the mushrooms. Where do you find the balance of, of traditional medicine? Like, like if I can say indigenous medicine and some of the traditions that you've studied and that you've employed in your own life. And um, I'm hesitating to use the word science, but, but you know, modern medicine, so to speak, how do you, how do you reconcile the two and, and, and how do you decide what works for you or what do you present to other people? 
Um, well, I, I make sure to, to be aware of all the methods for everyone so that they make a, a wise and informed choice. But I also remind them that Western medicine is only, what, 100 years old or maybe 250 years, you know, moving from alchemy to chemistry and, and those transitions. So uh, many of the traditions that, that we have and that we know of, especially in the Amazon, are up to 10,000 years old. So I don't, I don't know how that's disputable uh, other than, you know, it's all hearsay and, and that's what the West would tell you. But I always make sure that everyone is aware of their options. So there's many plants that you can take with chemotherapy uh, to help you get through the chemotherapy. Like a lot of people like to drink chaga, but um, chaga, the Inonotus obliquus, the, the mushroom that grows on birch trees, uh, many people take that, but it's not the only thing that you can take. Like to take chemotherapy with chaga is totally okay. That's an okay thing. Um, and it may support you, uh, but I can't say anything for sure. Everyone has to make their own choice. Um, I just make sure that everyone is informed because I, I don't push one way or the other because I'm alive because of Western medicine. I had a blastomycosis, which is prevalent in, in the Lake of the Woods region. And without Western medicine, I wouldn't, I would not be sitting here right now. So I don't talk down about it because the research is, is phenomenal because many people died years, years before I'd, I uh, acquired that, that fungus in my lungs. So, and there, there is a gentle balance that everybody is going to need to take. And some people are more faithful people, like they are very religious. So they want to follow the power of God, or they want to follow the power of Gichimanadu or and whatever it is, I can facilitate that. And that's what I've had to do. And that's why I, I feel like I'm a good bridge is because we have to do all of those things. Because the, the creator gave us all of it. All of it. Western medicine is created by us and we were created by God. So, and that's just my belief. Like, and, and these are just perspectives of, of other people that are faithful, faithful people. But God gave us psychedelics too. And they're really effective. And they're, they're really effective because as soon as you take them, you, you know, you know, like one, one time I got to see my father, my father's been dead for almost 12 years. And, um, it was a, a, an enlightening experience. I got to relieve my grief because of, because of ayahuasca. So, um, I say you can do both if you need to, I don't see anything, any problem with that. And unless you, you, you need to understand the interaction. So I feel more confident because I can understand what those interactions between drugs are. Like you don't take chaga when you have, you're on blood thinners because it's a blood thinner as well. So you don't want to compound those issues, you know, like just little, little important details. Well, like and that. it's important. It's important to point out. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is not a joke. I mean, ayahuasca no. as an example is not a joke. Um, it's a very serious commitment and it requires much preparation ahead of time. Right. I mean, it, it reminded me actually, like we hiked the, uh, Back in the day, this is like 20 years ago, but we hiked the Inca Trail. It was like 90K, uh, you know, to Machu Picchu. And it was amazing to stop along the way and understand with the guide that we were with who would describe the, the cleansing exercises and the spiritual purification that would occur um, with these Inca people that were traveling to Machu Picchu and how they had to arrive at Machu Picchu, the holy city, in a state of readiness, Right. I'm not sure if you would say in a state of, of purity, but in a state of readiness to receive that experience there. And, and it kind of reminded me 
of of the preparation heading into an ayahuasca ceremony. It's it's not something you kind of drop in on. It's not something that you you know, you, you grab a coffee and then you pop in and drink some ayahuasca and then you go about your day. That's that's couldn't nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Yeah. Did you chew coca leaves while you went up? We did. Yeah. Yeah. They they, yeah, they, they, they asked if we were tested for cocaine on our jobs. And I said, I don't have a job. And they said, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what proves like. And you know what? The great thing about the coca leaves and we it's legal in our country. You can order coca tea and have it shipped here because it requires a lot to try to create cocaine. Like it's not uh, an easy thing, but it increases the oxygen in our muscles and it makes you feel bright right away. When people get upset at the healing center, we would like get upset, like emotional. You give them a cup of coca tea, they're fine. They're fine. It's it's there for a reason. So when you, you hike those trails, you need that amount of oxygen because the oxygen levels decrease as you climb. Really important. Mm-hmm. I've got this uh, message here from some random guy. That's the handle he uses, um, says the fear of chemicals, you know, seems to ignore the fact that psilocybin is also a chemical. It's just packaged in a mushroom. So like if you extract the psilocybin from the mushroom for medicinal purposes, does that all of a sudden suddenly make it a chemical? I think that's a great question. Mm. Well, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? It's it's a compound. Yeah. Yeah, it's a compound. Yeah, I, I just think, I don't know, as a society, like, are we, and I wrestle with this, and this is why I, you know, I love, what I love is I love roundtables that, that or, or, or any conversation or any interview that'll, that'll force me to challenge what I believe or, 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 or force me to think about these types of things. I mean, an ayahuasca journey um, is something that uh, every person has to decide for themselves. They have to do proper research. I, I would be absolutely in for that type of thing. I've seen close personal friends of mine uh, microdose psilocybin and, and, and report in some cases positive results in other cases didn't work for them. And that's fine. Um, I must acknowledge that I am cut from the cloth of somebody that 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 would cringe if I heard that, for example, somebody with serious mental health issues was going off medication that had been beneficial to them and was going to go purely to a holistic med or some sort of, you know what I mean? I mean, I have to, I'm just going to admit that. And I, and I think that that to a certain degree, I would continue to advocate that position. I would, I would encourage people that are listening to this on the podcast or watching this talk to their doctor before making these types of decisions. Um, But I also acknowledge Jasmine that, that, that many medical practitioners, doctors and others um, maybe aren't at a position where they're ready and willing to open their minds to these types of things. And something like ayahuasca may not get a fair shake from someone's family physician. Yeah, it wouldn't at all. It wouldn't get a fair shake. And for good reason, because it's not tested. It's not tried. There's not, um, there's not the, the science behind it for a lot of people to feel comfortable. Now, a lot of the times I, I also tell people, if you are on an antidepressant, the likelihood that you could have like, and that it, it's working for you, the likelihood that you have a problem with your brain is, is possible. So the ba- the doctor is create, trying to create a balance in your brain. And if you found balance, then stick with the balance. Um, I don't encourage anybody to go off of their medications ever. Uh, I don't, you can't take, you know, SSRIs with ayahuasca because it's, there's just too much serotonin in your system and it can cause serotonin syndrome. But there's a reason why that the doctor gives you that, that drug, because maybe you 
are missing part of your brain. You don't, you have no idea. You have no idea. There, there's always a reason that the doctors do that. And they, they do it out of, you know, many years of research, 40 years of knowledge. So don't ever, ever put it on the back burner. It's really important because if you, if you have an issue in your brain, then you should address it. And if we can address it with a Western method, then, then stick with it. But if you know that you can, like I was prescribed SSRIs as a teenager. Well, I don't like even, I wish I would have known before because even now I wouldn't give a young child that's going through puberty uh, an SSRI. It's just irresponsible because it's going to change the way I'm going to grow up. Like, I don't believe that I needed to change the way. And, you know, up to 28 years old for men, 24 for women, we're not even done growing. Our brain isn't done growing. So taking things like cannabis, before you're 28 could be harmful. You know, like there's some things that could be harmful. Mind you, microdosing psilocybin when you're a youth, it's growing brain matter. Like ayahuasca, there's this one study that talked about how it promotes the growth in the hippocampus. So you're allowed to move memories from from short-term memories to long-term memories. There's there's a number of these studies that are we need to uncover more, more information. And especially so that we can change the idea that, you know, rigid scientists could have. Um, and that we got, we got to accept it all. That's just my opinion. We got to accept it all and, and try to use methods that are going to work for everyone. Craig uh, on our live chat says, Moses talked to a burning bush who said it was God. You're going to tell me he wasn't tripping uh, that from Craig. Um, that's not even the most controversial thing Craig has done today. He showed up into the live chat with the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, profile photo. That's so. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I know. Mark says Mark goes, man, drugs aren't for me, which is totally fine and totally cool. Um, another says I wanted to read this one. Um, this is great. Where is it? Emma. Emma says, you know, I didn't experience major challenges until I was 25 years old. And then and then they hit me like a freight truck. But she says, Ryan, what you just described earlier, that's me. There are so many benefits and draws to transitioning to a holistic approach. The meds make me feel awful and I want to live a vibrant life. Um, these are these are the types of conversations that I hope can put some of these things on people's radar. Um, I would imagine, I mean, you know, some roundtables or some some conversations on podcasts or shows, we we attempt to solve something or we attempt to tie them up with a neat little bow at the end of the talk. And, and this is just this is just going to be the beginning of what will be hours of research and potentially life changing experiences for some people um, if it fits them. And, and I'm grateful for the two of you to have joined us for this conversation, uh, allowing us to, to glean some understanding into what we may just hear about in passing. I want to ex extend a, a sincere gratitude to both of you for your time into overtime this morning on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm, yeah, I'm so happy to chat. Uh, just love it. Uh, that's Jasmine Prosik of the uh, Canadian Psychedelic Association. Um, and uh, and Ryan Hook, a journalist uh, out of Ontario and, and B.C., respectively, uh, Lake of the Woods and Victoria. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot to think about. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this. And just I, I can't wait to pick Sam's brain on this. Um, first of all, I want to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy is a proud presenter of positive reflections every Monday morning here on the show. You can send us your positive reflection, a beautiful photo. The Aurora Borealis is going nuts in our neck of the woods right now. 
I'm hoping to see a few wonderful photos of that from you real talkers sent into talk at ryanjesperson.com. Videos, even stories of how somebody changed your day. That email we read off the top of the show today from Sean, how he said he was in the parking lot of the store to buy something he didn't need, and then he decided instead, based on real talk, to donate the money to people fighting poverty instead of buying something he didn't need. Wow, that could have been a positive reflection. It's presented by Kubi Energy. They are Tesla certified solar installers. Uh, out of BC and Alberta, a team of electricians and electrical apprentices. Get this, they fill out the paperwork for you so you don't have to be hassled if you're looking to go solar or integrate some green energy into your energy cache. They're the ones to talk to at Kubi Energy. Park Power is where you're going to be able to get 70 bucks off your next power bill. Could be your natural gas bill, your internet bill, if you sign up at parkpower.ca and use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They're Alberta-grown. That means their entire staff is here. You call their customer service. Uh, you, you need. You have a question about your billing. Something's not working out for you. You're going to talk to somebody right here, right here in this province of Alberta that's going to be able to help you out. That's something Park Power is very proud of, and they show that by giving back to the communities where they operate. 10% of their profits are shared with nonprofits at Park Power. Also, a shout out to the team at Clean Air Club. If you want to save money and breathe easy, cleanairclub.ca is where you can start. It takes like two minutes. You tell them the size of the furnace filter you need. It's printed right on the side of your furnace filter. Next thing you know, they drop off replacement filters at your front door, sometimes the next day, along with a little gift, as a matter of fact. This way, your family can breathe the air you know that's running through proper filtration, not contaminated, and you're going to pay less than you pay in stores at cleanairclub.ca. So, Ryan Hook, Jasmine Prozik, and Dr. Peter Silverstone join us for what proves to be an extended conversation about psychedelics, mental health, diet, culture, legislation, research. Sam Brooks, uh, who, who, who annotates many of these interviews um, in order to pull our highlight clips, which I tweet out and post on Facebook every single day. You were furiously scribbling. Um, I'm trying really hard not to just be looking at my notebook throughout the show anymore. I actually, I actually put a sign on my laptop that says "Look up" <laughs> more often, so I'm a little more checked in. But yeah, this is one of those ones where I was just like scribbling to hell, and and, and time just kind of like disappeared. Did you panel. come in here with a with a with an idea, like a preconceived notion, or did you come in here with with an opinion on psychedelics? I, I think I, I, I probably am very similar to where you're at, and, and probably similar to where a lot of our our viewers and our listeners are at, and just the idea that I I'm curious I'm very 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 curious I, I don't think that we can ignore treatments that have existed for thousands and thousands of years because like it's interesting you know again as a person that that like champions so much medical science and so much Western medicine and and that kind of stuff people seem to think that these things are in conflict with each other and you know I mean we're not talking about super pseudoscience. We're not talking about Gwyneth Paltrow's jade eggs. We're talking about treatments that, you know, societies all over the world have, have used very effectively for thousands of years. And, you know, quite frankly, I think they do have a place in modern medicine. I think that they have a place in a, in a regulatory frame. And as, as cannabis has shown us in, in a mass adoption is that like, you know, when you, when you shift your perspective on something, it, it stops being scary and it starts being helpful. And so is it the is it the silver bullet for everything? Of course not. But should we continue to keep this underground? I also think absolutely not. Like Peter Silverstone kind of said, you know, we can study it, but we can't really prescribe it. We can't really open clinics. And I think that that's probably a good place for us to be. And we should keep studying this. But I mean, he's right. We need to, you know, we need to actually 
take a good look at this tool that we've had in our toolbox for thousands of years and, and, and ask ourselves why we're not using it or how we can use it. Yeah, that's what I loved about the panel was that you have uh, Jasmine who brings in her her, her personal, first of all, her personal experience. And then also this the perspective of someone who has studied and lived traditional medicine. Yeah. Right? I, and then you've got Dr. Silverstone from the from, you know, a, a trained psychiatrist, a brain scientist. And then you've got Ryan Hook, who's commenting on the cultural angle of this. I thought it was a great um, kind of like you want to hit it from three different angles. The last thing you want is a panel where everybody just agrees and sort of has the nobody same likes thing a panel where everybody agrees with boring. Each other. Yeah, yeah. No, a, a thing I really, really loved about Jasmine in particular is you know um, she came at so many of these things, saying it's like, yeah, you can use this alongside with Western medicine. She yeah. talked about you know uh, SSRIs and chemotherapy and and how there's like some things are blood thinners and you can't take these things together. And it's just you know again, it's not this either or. It's a let's let's understand the science behind this and figure out where it can fit into our suite of treatments and and not you know not put them in these separate buckets. And I think that that's one of the things that we've been really really. Uh, doing for a very long time but you know i also look at it the same thing yeah there's other forms of traditional healing things like acupuncture that are very effective alongside western medicine so it's you know it's not stuff that we we need to be completely ignoring yeah blake uh says my folks both in their 60s uh they're both pack a day cigarette smokers you know cringe whenever we discuss cannabis he says it's amazing how much that stigma uh, holds, you know, when, when it comes to, to oftentimes any drug. Heidi says, yeah, my parents were the same, Blake. Now in their 70s, um, they've now been using CBD oil for their pain. Heidi says it's it's wild to me. Um, that's another thing. I mean, Connor McCannabis, who's been chiming in on our on our live chat, is uh, in the business of medical cannabis. He's a really interesting You guy. don't say. His, yeah. his handle kind of tipped me off a bit. Well, no, but there's a difference between, you know, being a... I, I say this lovingly, being a pothead. Um, you know, I'm a pothead, so it's not an uh, insult. He could just be an enthusiast. It's, I get it. it's not yeah. an insult, um, but he is actually in the business. And so, um, what's it called? Shays Roots, I think, is his clinic in St. Albert. Um, but he's been talking about that. Uh, but, but it's interesting. You know, for example, people like Shane says, you know, moving away from stifling research and banning substances, we should be opening the world up and diving in. You know, Shane says, let's get that research and practice going. Right. Blake says, I'm so hopeful that my parents change their minds down the road. After quitting cigarettes myself, I realized how powerful nicotine addiction is. Williams talking about Ritalin. We could do an hour on Ritalin. Williams says my fun. My, my son was basically you know, basically forced to it to take riddle into it if he wanted to attend his school. And after two weeks, he'd come home and he'd sit on his bed and cry. We had to go. There was, it was a nightmare to, to put a stop to it. And he's never been the same since then. That from William. Nigel says, I don't know that hallucinogens or psychedelics would be good for me, but I do try to be open minded. I would say. Uh, and, and again, I want to be careful here. I do want to say, like, number one, don't go off your meds without talking to your doctor ever. Uh, you know, number two, start small. You know, I mean, people talk about hallucinogens, whether it's magic mushrooms or people, even if you're talking about cannabis, like edibles or or anything. I mean, you imagine everyone's seen that, you know, everybody's heard that terrible story. And sometimes the kid gets made fun of and there's no harm done. And other times there are tragic outcomes. But, you know, the kid that's never drank at the high school party that shows up and, you know, skulls a Mickey of vodka and then everything goes sideways. I mean, there are other equivalents to that in psychedelics and everything else. And, and you know, start small, do what's right for you, do the research ahead of time. You know, don't do something just because you heard it on real talk and you want to you know, you think that it might be right for you and it, it has disastrous consequences. Yeah, we're Do not endorsing reading. anything. Here. Not endorsing anything. We're exploring things. Yeah. 
I, I just like I think the other thing too is just like so much of this just hasn't been given a fair shake in studies, as, as you pointed out, and I think as as Dr. Silverstone put it out, pointed out, you know we're very quick to ban things without studying them and, and maybe we should restrict use without studying. I think that that's entirely a fair point to take, but actually do the work. Don't just shut it down and say, we're never going to talk about this again. That's what the war on drugs was. And we've seen how unbelievably ineffective that was. Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed our live chat now is talking about uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I've, I've had some friends that have participated in that themselves. Um, Evan says this is so annoying. My brother's a paramedic in Regina in Saskatchewan was getting EMDR to help his PTSD and was doing wonders. And then the treatments got cut from his benefits. <laughs> you know, um, Emma says my mom in her mid 60s has shifted from zero alcohol, you know, fearful of all drugs to now helping me research psilocybin microdosing. What a shift of judgment. Nick says the entire war on drugs was originally a war on Chinese workers on the railroads. They used opiates that made them work harder and faster, and they were displacing American workers. Yeah, and it was also a war on Mexican people as well. Well, the, the, the war on drugs on cannabis is... is un, it's, it's unbelievably racist. It, it's, it's like some of the most racist legislation yeah. in the history of legislation. Um, so this is, this is great. And, and Connor McCann is chiming in, says he's exactly right. Ryan is don't run out and just go do this stuff on your own. hundred percent. I want to get to some emails here uh, real quick. Let me fit in a quick mention to, to remind you how grateful we are for the support of the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Not only do they have literally the best selection of Ram truck, 1500s, these half ton, I mean, the obviously Ram truck, the reputation speaks for itself, but the 2021 Jeep lineup as well represented at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge from the fuel efficient compass. These are the, the kind of the, the, the grocery getters you know all the way up to the the wranglers the, those rubicon wranglers ready to wheel the gladiator trucks the seven passenger grand cherokee new this year and then the and then the i mean they're redefining with the grand wagoneer the luxury suv six figures but beautiful i do not have the keys to one of those but i have seen them online they're incredible if you want to check them out yourself you know where to find them at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also, a big shout out to the team at Local Waste. Tomorrow, they will present Trash Talk. So this is my call out to you, Real Talkers. If there's something that is grinding your gears and you got to get it off your chest, send it to us today. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. In the subject line, put Trash Talk. That's presented by Local Waste. For more than 25 years, they've been family-owned and operating against the big garbage guys, these big faceless corporations. you you got a problem with their service, good luck getting through on the 1-800 line local waste you call them directly or you can visit them at localwaste.ca that's the same deal with alta moving and storage not only are they the best at what they do in the province of alberta short and long-term storage but they've got these pod style moving containers this is the new rage if you, if you haven't moved in 10 years because you just know that you're it's going to be the most stressful thing ever talk to alta moving and storage they take the stress away they're proud of what they do they're problem solvers and they do it right here locally owned at alta moving and storage we got an email from Robert to talk at RyanJesperson.com. I love this one. He says, uh, after watching the show uh, a short time ago when Ryan was talking to Riaz Meghji, um, that author, he says, and, and, and seeing Ryan's confessions, um, I think Robert is talking about me and my phone and, and, and screen time in front of my kid. And I was wrestling with it. And if you watch that interview with Riaz, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was a wonderful conversation. Robert says, I think you may have 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 touched on an interesting segment idea. He says, what if you had a like a recurring segment with some of the people that you've already had on the show, like Riaz Magji or Dr. Jody Carrington? Boy, is she ever a 
tornado is a compliment when I use it. She just like rolls We have a in. lot of requests to bring her We back. have a lot of requests for Jody Carrington. Oh, yeah. And, and she said, she's like, I'll come on anytime. Um, but Robert says, you know, maybe a segment on anybody who might be able to provide tips and tools for specific self-improvement or complex personal questions. He says you could have listeners and viewers send in confessions about a, a certain expert's skill set or topic. So we'd announce it ahead of time. He says, I think you've garnered enough trust from your audience that they will know you won't expose them. You've created a space where people can feel comfortable sharing, you know, a place that we can say the things that we think out loud to ourselves, but we don't say them out loud like you hit on Ryan with you and your son, Wyatt. That from Robert. I love that idea, Robert. I think that's a great idea. I wanted to read this. This is a longer email, but it's a good one from Lauren. Uh, Lauren says, I wanted to thank you for having Les Landry on your show. He seems like a fine human. It represents a perspective that's rarely heard as we ponder Alberta's financial future. Les was on talking about people fighting poverty. And real talkers stepped up and donated like almost three grand. Or I haven't even checked. Like It was unbelievable. Lauren says, when we have esoteric, like armchair policy wonk discussions about sales tax or healthcare premiums, let's please be mindful of folks like less. Lauren says, as somebody with lived experience, I don't have a lot of real life examples of how policy decisions, decisions affect people living in poverty. It's obvious to me that many people either don't have a clue about poverty or choose not to have a clue. I've never personally received income support, but more than 20 years ago, I was a divorced parent of a six-year-old with no way to collect child support that was owed to me. I was a full-time student at the University of Alberta in graduate studies. I worked very part-time in a specialized field in addition to full-time parenting, and I tried to volunteer in my community too. I earned 20 grand a year, which was too much to get any discounts for daycare or healthcare premiums. I was the only one paying non-subsidized. I was the only paying non-subsidized client at the great daycare that looked after my child so I could work and attend classes. I didn't own a vehicle. I got free clothing from the community clothing exchange. I traded vegetables from my garden or baked goods for a ride to the grocery store once a month. Supplemental food came from my neighbors and the campus food bank. I spent my meager food budget on cheap but healthy food that took hours to cook. Lauren says I can advocate for legumes and cheap cuts of meat any day. My child had never been on a holiday or participated in organized sports or any summer program. And when I found out from other parents that I've worked, if I worked enough bingos, I could cover soccer fees. I did that, too, in my, you know, spare time. I paid one utility bill every month and I was perpetually in arrears. I had no savings, no credit, no life or health insurance. I just ignored the bills the government sent me for healthcare premiums and I hoped for the best. So I know what it feels like to not eat anything for 48 or 50 hours so your child can have something for lunch at school in grade one and grade two for a couple of days before your monthly check is deposited. What's it like to not go to the dentist for five years because there's no way to pay for it? I know. Or to not fill a prescription that really you should get one day. But people who have these experiences are almost completely excluded from policy circles. Like they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. 
As of December 2020, there were about 70,000 people supported by AISH in Alberta, the assured income for the severely handicapped. Another 44,000 on income support. Most of these folks spend every cent they have every month just to stay alive. So hell yeah, a 5% increase in cost to a person living on 20 grand a year is a big deal. I could barely do it 20 years ago, and I'm educated and able-bodied. So the question for me, says Lauren, and maybe the question for others is what can we as a society do about this? Pay higher taxes? You know, each of us who has the means support another family. She says, I don't know if I like Les's corporate sponsorship idea, as a matter of fact, but really real talkers, Albertans need to collectively decide if there is a social contract and if we have an obligation to look after our elders, youth, disabled citizens and others. And I sure hope the answer is yes. She says, my fellow Albertans, more than two out of every hundred of us are living this every day with no way out like I had, thanks to affordable access to a graduate school education. Seriously, I believe we can and must do better. And this absolutely must be a part of budget discussions. She says also, and she makes a, I'm not going to spoil it. She makes a guest suggestion, but the wheels are already in motion to book this guy. So so I'm going to use that as a surprise to Lauren because we've already been talking to him and he's going to come on here. She says, but there are other people out there that are doing things like what Les is doing and their stories need to be told. There are horrific real life stories that are happening on an ongoing basis that from real talker Lauren. Wow. Lauren just keeps delivering on the emails. This is not the first time we've heard from her. It's not the first time. No. And the perspective is, is in my Fantastic. mind, always well shot out or, or rather well spelled out, well told, well communicated and coming from lived experience, which in my mind, I mean, education is great. We bring on experts, doctor, of this CEO of that PhD in this a lot of times lived experience. I mean, how are you going to beat lived experience? Well, that's where you get the real talk. From. You know, it's where you get real talk. It's the whole point. And you look at the way our audience responds. Some of our most listened to interviews, some of our most watched segments are People that are, as we described less the other day, just a guy, just a guy with a remarkable circumstance. These stories are told because you continue to communicate with us what you want to see on the show. You can find us on the hashtag any day at Real Talk RJ. You can send us an email at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Tomorrow's going to be a great show. Very much looking forward to it. And uh, I encourage you to continue to think of ways that we can make an impact in our community. And let's gather here again tomorrow and talk it out. We're grateful for your loyalty. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you're watching right now, tell your parents and your friends to subscribe to our podcast and spread the word. We're doing great stuff here and it's all because of you. We'll talk to you tomorrow.